In order to grieve, we must care about something and be connected to something beyond ourselves. Welcome, neighbors, to Hometown Earth, the podcast that brings a down-to-earth approach to all of your sustainability questions. I'm your host, Lena Sanford, here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here, we believe that everyone can change the world. Do you believe? I'm a Midwest gal with big dreams to discover what it takes to reduce my impact on this beautiful place we call Hometown Earth. Join me every Tuesday as we navigate what actions we can take, big or small, to make a positive impact in your life and the lives of your neighbors on Hometown Earth. Hello, neighbors. I have to be honest, sometimes I find myself struggling with the words to say here in this space, discussing topics that feel extremely heavy, knowing we don't equally carry the burden of climate change on this planet, all the while doing what I can to inspire you to continue to have hope as I try to find the good and the hope myself. As you know, this is a journey towards sustainability, and that journey comes with many ups and downs and can include climate grief. I'm pretty active on social media as well as Reddit and find myself hearing others feeling the same way, regardless of whether they call it climate grief or not. Because I don't have the words to help, I went searching for someone who would. I stumbled upon the work of Andrew Bryant, a clinical social worker and psychotherapist living and working on the traditional land of the Duwamish people in Seattle, Washington. Andrew manages the website Climate and Mind, a resource hub for exploring how climate change impacts our thoughts, emotions, and behavior. In addition to work on this project, Andrew is also a therapist at North Seattle Therapy and Counseling. Andrew graciously makes his content available for free, so what I'm going to read to you today is a piece that you can find on climateandmind.org titled, What is Climate Grief? It is by Andrew Bryant, and it is licensed under Creative Commons license. Just a heads up, I will include the link to this piece directly in the episode description. And if you like it, I encourage you to visit other resources linked on Climate and Mind and consider donating. I hope this piece helps you to understand what you or someone else might be going through and how you might be able to move forward. So without further ado, let's get into it. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Aldo Leopold. Along with anxiety, the word grief is increasingly used to describe a common and pervasive psychological response to the ecological crisis and climate disruption in particular. Many people associate grief with the bereavement experienced after the death of a loved one, So it may not be obvious, initially, how the word grief can apply to something as broad, ongoing, and seemingly nebulous as climate disruption. But many of those impacted directly by climate change and others who are working on climate issues as scientists or activists use grief-related language to describe their feelings. The purpose of this paper is to describe climate grief to explore how it manifests and how it differs from other forms of grief, and to suggest some ways of working with it productively. Have you ever felt sad, 
angry, despairing, or confused in the face of news about the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, or the mass extinction of species worldwide, a sense of loss, melancholy, or helpless in response to changes to your local environment, the loss of green spaces, the disappearance of familiar plants and animals, or the increase in forest fires or smoke, hopeless or scared about the future of the planet and ecological system and the future that your children, your family, or all future generations might inherit, if any of this sounds familiar, you have a taste of what ecological grief feels like. They all represent a loss or anticipated loss of something we value in our local and global environment. When we experience a loss strongly enough, the natural human response is to grieve. And we call it ecological grief if what was lost or what may be lost is a part of our ecological world. Ecological grief has been described as the grief felt in relation to experienced or anticipated ecological losses, including the loss of species, ecosystems, and meaningful landscapes due to acute or chronic environmental change. The grief is not only associated with the direct loss of nature, such as the clear-cutting of rainforest or extinction of a species, it can also arise in response to changes in our way of life. Consolo and Ellis identify three pathways through which ecological grief can manifest. One, Grief associated with physical, ecological losses and attendant ways of life and culture. Two, grief associated with disruptions to environmental knowledge systems and resulting feelings of loss of identity. Three, grief associated with anticipated future losses of place, land, species, and culture. So, ecological grief can be about an environmental change on the physical level, but it can also be about loss of knowledge, culture, and identity as they relate to a particular place or to the state of the planet as a whole. When we feel ecological grief in response to the impacts and anticipated impacts of climate disruption, including feelings of despair, anger, fear, guilt, sadness, yearning, disorganization, and other emotions, we call this climate grief. There's a couple ways of thinking about climate grief. Grief is not a problem to be fixed. The most important thing to remember about any type of grief is that it is a natural human response to loss. It is not a pathology or a problem to be fixed or a sign of weakness. Grief is an essential aspect of our humanity, and it is deeply embedded in our history as a species. Burial rituals are one of the earliest documented and most universal expressions of human culture. In fact, there is evidence that other animals besides humans experience some form of grief, so it is likely that it predates human culture. In order to grieve, we must care about something and be connected to something beyond ourselves. Failing climate grief means caring about the ecosystem and about species, including humans, who will be hurt or lost as a result of climate change. As Leslie Davenport writes in her book, Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change, grief is a form of love. We grieve the loss of what made us feel most deeply connected. With climate grief, it may be loss of the dream of a future for your grandchildren, free of the challenges that are currently emerging. 
It can include the devastating loss of lives and property. Whatever the scope, level, or intensity of the loss, the process of grieving evokes the same emotional phases. The feelings related to grief can be very difficult to bear, but what if we remember to think of grief as a natural expression of caring, even love? We can begin to see grief as a form of compassion and strength. We can even begin to see our grief as a tool for action. There's also no right way to grieve. It is easy to generalize about how people should grieve using assumptions based on individual experience or cultural norms, but the enormous diversity in grief rituals across cultures and the range of individual reactions to loss within a single culture should make us weary of talking about grief in terms of rigid, universal stages or tasks. On a practical level, having a fixed idea about how we should feel about a particular loss can make it difficult to notice how we actually feel. Climate grief is no exception, and to the extent that in this essay we present frameworks for understanding climate grief and strategies for dealing with it, we do so only to suggest directions to look in when feeling stuck. No model can override your personal experience, nor can any model deny other equally valid ways of conceiving of and working through loss. We also all have the capacity to be resilient in the face of grief. Just as grief is not a problem to be fixed, it is also good to remember that grief is not inherently debilitating, overwhelming, or chronic. Research has shown that in most cases, people show a natural resilience in the face of grief at the loss of a loved one, and delayed or chronic grief responses are not the norm. Most people appear to have a natural capacity following the initial crisis of a loss to move through grief while maintaining a healthy level of functioning, emotion, and growth. In other words, to be resilient. This research should encourage us as we consider how we face the grief associated with climate change. However, most grief research is based on sudden and isolated losses, and it is not clear how we humans process ongoing ecological loss and disruption, which can be ongoing and without resolution. Climate grief is also disenfranchised grief. Some types of grief are more supported socially than others. For instance, all societies have rituals surrounding the death of a close family member. The appropriateness of grief in this context is recognized and validated through cultural practices and community validation. Of course, this does not make the loss of a loved one easy, but social support and cultural practices provide a space and tools for a person to deal with their grief in the company of others. In contrast, some losses are not community-acknowledged and do not have a cultural context for expression. This category of grief is known as disenfranchised grief, and we would expect these losses to be experienced differently. Ecological grief and climate grief fall into the category of disenfranchised grief because in most cases, social and cultural supports for processing climate grief do not exist. As of yet, no socially sanctioned and supported ways exist for people to experience and make meaning of the climate grief in a communal way. And in many cases, this leaves people feeling isolated and alone. 
To quote Leslie Davenport again, the widespread denial of climate change losses prevents our emotional pain from being socially acknowledged and validated. Those touches by this grief may be viewed as overly sensitive, as exaggerating the issue, or even as emotionally unbalanced. These responses can encourage individuals to isolate, remain silent, and become disenfranchised from their own grief process, rather than moving through it with support. Surprisingly, climate grief is even disenfranchised within communities of climate activists and climate scientists. Even though members of these groups may experience grief the most due to the level of exposure to the issue. Because grief emotions are not often discussed in scientific and activist settings, many feel isolated in their experiences of grief, even while surrounded by others who feel similarly. Because of this disenfranchisement, it is important to name climate grief, to validate it, and to rediscover or create new ways of working through it. And just as human grief for millennia has been a relational group process through funerals, wakes, shiva, religious practices, public mourning, and support groups, climate grief may be best addressed for many in a group setting. Various models have been developed to make sense of the grief process. Before we consider a few of those models and how they do or don't apply to climate grief, it's important to reiterate that there is no right way to experience climate grief. We use a few models of grief to look at common reactions to climate grief. Each perspective is neither complete nor exclusive of others, but they offer some insight into the complex puzzle of how humans experience loss on an environmental and planetary scale. Kubler-Ross Five Stages is the most well-known model of grief. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross developed this model based on work with terminally ill patients in the late 1960s. More recently, Stephen W. Running presented a framework for understanding of climate grief using the same system of five stages. The five stages described by Kubler-Ross are 1. Denial, 2. Anger, 3. Bargaining, 4. Depression, and 5. Acceptance. The Kubler-Ross model has received significant critique over the years, particularly around the validity of its step-by-step process and whether the stages can be measurably observed. Given this proviso, let's consider the five stages in the context of climate change, not as a stepwise process from beginning to end, but as a set of five possible reactions to environmental loss. Climate denial. This category of reaction generally refers to people who refuse to accept the scientific evidence of climate breakdown out of fear of the implications. It can also explain the experience of people who believe the science but ignore the potential consequences and need for action. While it is easy to see these types of denial as ways of avoiding the reality of loss, there are some forms of denial that are probably necessary or even useful. Client scientist activist Suzanne Mosier uses the term functional denial to describe the need to continue functioning in the world we live in while at the same time holding in minds or hearts the reality of the loss we are facing. A quote from Mosier says, By and large, I get out of bed, I drink my tea, I do my life as if nothing else was going on. And at the same time, every single day, I face what we have created. If you ask me to stop for a minute and say, how do you feel about that? It can paralyze me. 
I have so much grief about it. I have such anger about it. It's all one big morass of emotions that I have about what we, humans, had the audacity to create out of blindness and then out of greed and whatever. So it's that simultaneity of being fully aware and conscious and not denying the gravity of what we're creating and also having to get up in the morning and provide for my family and fulfill my obligations in my work. For me, functional denial is a form of hope, end quote. Some form of denial may be necessary for us to all go on living in the face of enormous problems that we face, but it is not functional to consistently deny the reality of a loss that has real-world implications, such as climate disruption, simply because they make us feel scared or sad. Such denial ignores the need for action and can lead to greater loss by preventing us from adequately responding to or preparing for climate change. Climate anger. Anger and related feelings like frustration and rage are sometimes referred to as secondary emotions because they tend to cover up other more vulnerable emotions such as sadness, hopelessness, and confusion. In the context of climate, anger manifests among those who oppose climate action as rage towards climate activists. For those of us already convinced of the need for urgency, anger may be directed at the status quo, the powers that be, the people that got us into this mess, a climate troll on Twitter, the general public, or even ourselves. There is nothing inherently wrong with anger. Anger is a natural, healthy emotion It is an appropriate response to many genuinely infuriating situations in the world, the climate crisis being one of them. At its most basic, anger is an expansive feeling, a catalyst for action. Problems generally arise when we become stuck in our anger, when we act it out on others in a misdirected way, and when we don't slow down to understand and move through the underlying sadness and pain associated with climate grief. Climate bargaining. When we relate to climate change through bargaining, we seek to downplay the potential impacts of climate change or even focus on potential positive outcomes, such as better weather. We may buy an electric car or a few carbon credits and call it good. We may rest our hopes in pie in the sky technological fixes to avoid facing the realization that there is no simple fix and that climate change will require us to drastically change our consumption patterns and way of life. The key component of this reaction is the attempt to feel better, to avoid facing the loss by wishful thinking and token efforts. One component of this reaction stage is privilege. We can only bargain about climate breakdown when we have the privilege and luxury to avoid or delay its consequences. Such privilege arises from multiple intersecting factors such as geography, nationality, race, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, disability status, and age. When we notice ourselves in this bargaining phase, it is worth asking whether we are bargaining for our own peace of mind at the expense of more vulnerable, marginalized, and invisible groups who will face climate losses more drastically and with fewer resources. Climate depression. This stage kicks in when we accept the reality of climate disruption and its frightening consequences, but we feel helplessness or hopelessness about a chance of dealing with it. 
This hopelessness can be on the level of the individual. The problem is too big. What can I do about it? Or on the species level, humans are selfish and will never change. We're doomed. On the level of feelings, climate depression can manifest itself as lack of energy, motivation, or involvement in activities. A person suffering from climate depression may feel too hopeless about the future to reach out to others, join groups, or become involved in any kind of climate activism. This reaction can be common among climate scientists and activists Even if they remain involved, they may neglect self-care, overcommit to the cause, and potentially burn out. In its extreme, people with climate depression have suicidal thoughts or actions, reacting to a future they can only see as bleak and hopeless. If you are feeling suicidal, please reach out for help. Climate Acceptance In the original Kubler-Ross model, this stage involved the calm acceptance of the inevitability of death from terminal illness. However, grief from terminal illness is not analogous to climate grief. They differ both in finality and inevitability. Human extinction is not inevitable, and human life will continue in some form after you and I are gone. Here's how Rosemary Randall described this limitation of the Kubler-Ross model. It is a model from the end of life. It describes an experience without transition and without hope. The individual who is dying faces extinction, the loss of loved ones, and the ending of their creative life. There is little or no time ahead and little that can be looked forward to. In contrast, when facing climate change, we still have much to hope for and much to play for. The changes and adjustments we make also need to last across substantial periods of time. Sustaining our creativity and resourcefulness is essential. We have the chance to remake our lives. When applying acceptance to climate grief, We can best understand this stage broadly as a form of healthy, active acceptance of the facts and feelings of climate loss, of the impermanence of all life, and of the reality that while the future is unknown, it will inevitably include loss and suffering of those we care about. A radical acceptance of climate grief is similar to the functional denial discussed by Mosier in Step 1. It entails facing the truth about the situation— accepting our complex feelings, and at the same time remaining functional and engaged in the world. In this way, we have the chance to make things better and diminish the suffering of others without succumbing to depression and withdrawal. We have explored some useful ways of applying the famous five stages of grief model to climate grief, and we've considered some of its limitations. Now let's look at an alternate way of thinking about grief and how it can be applied to climate change. William Worden, in his book, Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy, laid out the process of grief as a series of four tasks that can either be embraced or rejected. He lays out no timeline and allows for the revisiting of tasks over time. This perspective aligns with our original case that grief is not a linear progression of stages and that there is no perfect process of grief. From Worden's point of view, we flow between tasks, sometimes rejecting them and sometimes embracing them. So let's explore how these tasks can be applied to climate grief. Task 1. Accepting or denying the reality of the climate loss. This task involves accepting the reality of climate change and the loss it will bring about. Echoing Kubler-Ross denial stage, the refusal to take up this task 
involves a denial of the reality of climate change or denial of its implications. Task 1 could also encompass the bargaining discussed above, which can be seen as a form of denial. Task 2 is working through or rejecting the emotions of climate grief. This task includes feeling our anger and rage about the situation we are in, but also feeling the deeper and more vulnerable emotions like sadness, guilt, melancholia, and hopelessness. An alternative to accepting Task 2 is to deny these feelings by walling them off, numbing them with substances, projecting them outwards on others, disparaging them as overly emotional, focusing manically or unsustainably on climate activism, or engaging in bargaining to make ourselves feel better. Task 3, adjusting to or withdrawing from the new reality of climate disruption. This task is a transitional one during which we reorient to the reality of climate change loss and the potential for a challenging future. It is altogether appropriate to feel uncertain, shy, confused, or experimental trying new things as we integrate the facts and feelings of our grief into our lives. Task 3 may involve changing our lifestyle or behavior, seeking out new people or groups that are supportive of our climate concerns and validating of our grief, and finding new strategies for self-care. The alternative to embracing this task is to stagnate, to deny possible pathways ahead, and to resign ourselves to depression and hopelessness. Task 4. Reinvesting energy in, or turning away from, an uncertain climate future. This task involves finding a way forward in full acceptance and acknowledgement of the facts, feelings, and potential losses we face. To refuse this task is, in a certain way, to refuse the love of the world because of the pain involved in facing its loss. Task 4 is consistent with radical acceptance we discussed above and can feel similar to the functional denial described by Mosier, in which we continue living life while maintaining balanced awareness and engagement with the grief we experience. It is helpful to imagine these tasks and stages as an ongoing spiral As we move through life, have new experiences, try new things, and learn new information, we should expect to revisit and struggle through each task from a new perspective. We may think that we have completed task four, entering into a period of stable, engaged life, only to be thrown unexpectedly back into tasks one, two, or three by life events, new climate news, or simply because we are human beings who are sensitive and experience a range of emotions. Climate grief studies is a new field, and there is much we don't know about how loss from climate disruption will impact us as individuals, as groups, and as a species. We know that humans are resilient to many forms of grief, but we don't know how this applies to ecological loss, especially because climate grief is disenfranchised. It lacks cultural supports and rituals to support resiliency. One consistent theme is that climate grief can be facilitated by facing our feelings and expressing them and engaging in meaningful action in the context of a community. Leslie Davenport suggests five tools that support resiliency in the face of climate grief. One, trust in grief process and our own capacity to abide with the experience of significant loss. This echoes our earlier point that grief is not a problem and that while we are naturally capable of dealing with it in a healthy way, 
If we trust the feelings of climate grief, allowing them and not trying to fight them, an inner resilience often arises. Two, kind curiosity about our feelings. By being open to our inner experience, however painful, and not fighting it or fixing it, we can find a sense of inner spaciousness. That will help build your core of emotional strength and you become less prone to being overwhelmed by feelings. Number three, somatic awareness. This means tracking how grief is experienced in our bodies. More and more research shows that thoughts and feelings are experienced in the body through tension in our shoulders, tightness in our throat, dread in our belly, or anxious agitation in our hands and feet. Being aware of our particular somatic responses and learning ways to self-soothe ourselves physiologically can help us cope with feelings without being overwhelmed. Four, knowing the story. This means understanding the ideas and assumptions we have about ourselves and the world as they relate to climate and the future. For example, ideas like we're doomed and I can't make a difference. No one understands me. I'm powerless. As Davenport says, these unexamined stories are almost always distorted. We amplify, minimize, add layers of self-judgment, and efficiently filter out our relevant and often positive aspects of the situation. Be curious and skeptical about sweeping judgment that tend to repeat themselves in our heads keeping us stuck in denial, anger, bargaining, or depression. Recognizing the stories we are trapped in is the first step towards getting free from them. Five, creative expression. While we humans do have some bad habits as a species, to say the least, we also have some remarkable qualities. One of our greatest is our inherent creativity, music, art, writing, dance, but also Math, science, engineering, just to name a few modes of creative expression. In fact, for many, climate grief is most heightened by the contemplation of how the richness of human creativity might be damaged or lost entirely. A grief based in love with the most precious expressions of our species. Davenport suggests we leverage this natural human creativity to shift our focus from the question, what have we done? which is a backwards-looking, uncreative perspective, to the creative question, what can we do? We live in a moment of great import for our planet, and each of us has an opportunity to engage our particular skills and capacities in a way that serves something bigger than ourselves, bigger even than our species. In other words, we have the choice to serve a special purpose, the support of life on Earth and the alignment of humans with the rest of the natural world. To achieve this, we will need love, connection, and collaboration, and we will need to give ourselves a chance to grieve. It is not clear if we will succeed. There is no knowing what the future holds. But being human has always involved persisting through danger and uncertainty. By embracing our love for nature and for humanity, even in the face of great loss and pain, our grief can inspire us and empower us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hometown Earth as much as I did. Let us know by rating and subscribing so you never miss an episode. New episodes drop every week on Tuesday. Head to the show notes linked in the episode description for more details. And let us know in the comments what you want to hear next. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can find more about the podcast on Instagram at Hometown Earth or connect with me personally at Lena Saintford. We all know change needs to happen. So let's get started right here at Hometown Earth. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.